All right, we're studying 2 Timothy chapter 1. We'll read verses 1 to 7. Verses 1 to 7. 2 Timothy 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve with a clear conscience, the way my forefathers did, as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day, longing to see you even as I recall your tears, so that I may be filled with joy. For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well. And for this reason I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. This second letter to Timothy, written by Paul, is a continuation of the first one. In the first letter, he showed Timothy, uh, a young elder or a young pastor, overseer of his church in Ephesus, what it means to be an elder and what kind of qualifications elders should have and how the church itself should conduct itself, how that all should, should work out. In 2 Timothy, he presses on to tell Timothy to fight the good fight of faith until the end, until the very end. That is the emphasis, to fight the good fight or to guard the gospel. Make sure that he guards the gospel or fights the good fight. It's not new for him to hear that he should fight the good fight. He has said that already a couple of times in 1 Timothy. He repeats that in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 7. However, you will see from chapter to chapter, guarding the gospel, remaining faithful to the gospel as a good soldier of Christ Jesus, this is the emphasis of this letter. It's, em it's important because this is the nature of life and death. This is the way things are. This is the way the gospel is. We either believe in Christ truly or we don't. When we, if we do, we have eternal life as our outcome. And if we don't, there is eternal punishment that awaits. That's why he emphasizes this gospel. Here, the, the guarding of the gospel in 2 Timothy. Let's begin at verse 1 where he identifies himself as Paul. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. As we know in the custom of letters it, at that period of time, it was the custom to identify the author at the, at the outset. When the role of the letter was opened up, naturally the recipient wanted to know and, and be assured uh, as to who sent the letter. So this is similar to us when we pick up the phone or answer a phone call. We want to know first thing, either from the phone itself or from the person identifying himself on the other line, who he is, who it is we're talking to. This is the way it is here. Paul is not doing this, in other words, he's not doing this because he's trying to boast and tell everybody who he is. That's not the reason. The purpose is for identification. And a part of the identification is that he's an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. He's an apostle. He has been set apart, specially set apart. Acts chapter 9, Galatians chapter 1 give us cross-references that identify his conversion and his apostleship, how he was commissioned as an apostle. This apostle is an apostle, one who is set apart for the gospel, but this gospel is not just anybody's gospel, it's the gospel of Christ Jesus. He doesn't go around promoting any other 
any other savior, any other messenger, any other prophet, any other savior, any other Lord except Christ Jesus. This is the reason he's an apostle. He preaches Christ and Christ crucified. He does not preach himself, but Christ Jesus as Lord. This is his message, to preach Christ, commissioned by Christ. And this is also confirmed by saying that he is an apostle by the will of God. There are many people, false prophets and false apostles that arise, but Paul is not like that. Paul is commissioned by the will of God. God himself from heaven, through the Lord Jesus Christ, spoke to the apostle and it has that authority. It is that unique because it is God himself who commissioned him. Therefore, Paul is worthy of his apostleship. Not because he's worthy in and of himself, because he was a lost and depraved man just as we are. He was just like that and he needed to be converted miraculously just as we had to be converted. His apostleship is by the will of God. He's not presuming upon this ministry. It's not something that he himself has cooked up or invented. He hasn't gone into the wilderness and fabricated some kind of vision of angels that he saw. Nothing like that. It is by the will of God. And also, this will of God and this apostleship of Christ Jesus is according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus. The message he preaches is a promise of life, not death. Every other way is a message of death, but the promise of life is in Christ Jesus. Only Christ Jesus has eternal life. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly, Jesus said. This life comes only from Christ and in Christ, faith in Christ not in anyone else, no other prophet, no other God, no other Lord, no other Savior, no other man, whatever we may, uh, the, the world might invent through the devil, by the instigation of the devil, it is false, it's wrong, and it leads to death. The only promise of life is in Christ Jesus. That's why he preaches, because there is a promise. And with the promise, there's hope, there's peace, there's assurance, there's security, uh, there's love. So this is the promise of life that he, he preaches, which is in Christ Jesus. Now, the addressee is Timothy, verse 2. Timothy. Timothy was a young pastor or young elder in the city of Ephesus, and Paul ministered there. Timothy was stationed there to be a leader of the church of, es of Ephes uh, Ephesus, and he's there, and we know from his presence there that there were some problems that uh, occurred. Ephesus, of all the letters that are written, Ephesus seems to be the more healthy church. However, it still had its problems, and it still had its leaders, such as Timothy, who needed guidance. Who needed guidance, who needed to, to be uh, prodded along and buttressed in the faith so that he remains faithful. Because it's even possible in a healthy situation for there to be laxity, for there to be sluggishness, for there to be uh, deception, for there to be even weakness and cowardice, which seems to be that the last, the latter seems to be a problem that Timothy faced, as we, we see in verse 7, that he had a spirit of timidity which did not come from God. Now, Timothy is also identified as my beloved son. Paul had a part in his conversion and discipleship. 
Paul had a part in that. Uh, Apollos, uh, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. There are various people involved in the conversion of individuals, but here he has this unique and special relationship to Timothy as his beloved son. This is an adopted son, a spiritual son, not a son naturally born, because we know from Acts chapter 16 that Timothy had a father who was a Greek and his mother was a Jew from Acts chapter 16. So beloved son means in a spiritual sense. And the one that he discipled for so long, he considers him beloved. He loves him. Because he loves him, he's going to tell him about the things that he ought to do. Guarding the gospel, remaining faithful, suffering like, G uh, or like Paul suffered for the sake of Jesus Christ. He's going to exhort him to do these kinds of things because he loves him. Not because he hates him, not, hates him, not because he has some ill intent toward Timothy, but because he loves him. Because he loves him, he will tell him the truth about how he should be faithful to the gospel and to the ministry that he has uh, been endowed with. Now, this is also, in verse 2, uh, a salutation of grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. It is the Father who sends the Son to distribute these graces and gifts, which is grace, grace, those things that we do not deserve, that God gives us mercy when we deserve judgment and punishment. Instead, we receive the mercy of God and peace, peace that reconciles us to God even though we were enemies, we now have peace not only with God, but also we were at odds with one another. Jews and Gentiles and people within the same family, same clan, same nation, uh, fighting and, and killing and destroying one another. No more. Th these are the kinds of changes that occur. Grace, mercy, and peace. And they only come from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. And the agent who gives these to us is the Holy Spirit. Verse 3, I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience, the way my forefathers did, as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day, longing to see you even as I recall your tears, so that I may be filled with joy. He thanks God for Timothy. He thanks God for Timothy's faith, uh, for the kind of life he lived, and he wants to see him. He longs to see him. They are separated. Paul is imprisoned. He's likely imprisoned in Rome. Timothy is in Ephesus. And he wants to see him again. He wants to see him again. And he wants to understand and know how Timothy is doing in the faith. He has genuine concern for the spiritual well-being of Timothy. He thanks God for what has already happened in the life of Timothy. He's not the same kind of man he used to be. Now he's not only converted, he is commissioned to preach the gospel. But God is a God that Paul serves with a clear conscience. He serves him with a clear conscience. He doesn't serve him with a dirty, unclean, dead conscience, but with a clear conscience. That is, he knows inside, deep inside, his soul, that the things he believes are true. And the life he lives is genuine. 
and he serves God with a clear conscience. People impugn Paul with wrong motives and evil motives, but Paul rebuts that, anticipates that, by saying that he serves with a clear conscience. This is the way I conduct my life. I don't have guile in me. I don't have deceit in me. I, I preach the gospel. I live my life before God with a clear conscience. I don't have guilt in the things I'm preaching. And we will see later that is coupled with sufferings. His clear conscience is coupled with sufferings. People who have a clear conscience and suffer for it are, are few. They are few. And Paul is one of them. And this also vindicates the, the fact that he is preaching the true gospel. He has the internal testimony and the external testimony of his sufferings. The internal of a clear conscience and the external of the sufferings. There aren't many people who will live their life this way, both with internal holiness and external manifestation of that holiness by persecution. But Paul isn't unique. Verse 3 says, the way my forefathers did. The forefathers he has in mind are not the rebellious forefathers. Obviously not. He's not talking about the, those who were stone-hearted in the days of Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel and the other prophets. He's not talking about that. He's talking about the godly forefathers. The forefathers who put their faith in the coming of Christ. This is the same faith and the same service to God, the same God that Paul serves in Christ. The forefathers, the ancient fathers, from the time of Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, and all the rest of them, they served the one true and living God the way Paul did in Christ. They served God the Father by knowledge of Christ and their salvation in Christ and by means of the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the way they did. And Paul does the same. So Paul's faith... Paul's gospel is not a new gospel. Right. This is uh, also in, that, in the anticipation that the detractors from Paul will accuse Paul of preaching a new and a strange, a different gospel, a different way of knowing God when Paul's assertion is no, it's not. It's the same way. It's been that way all the way from the book of Genesis and it will be this way until the end of time. Now, Paul's love for Timothy shows that he is constantly remembering him in prayers night and day. He's praying constantly for Timothy's well-being, for not only Timothy, but the church that Timothy guides and leads. He's praying for the well-being of those believers. This is a genuine, heartfelt way for him to express that he loves Timothy and loves the people of God. When one prays for others, when one prays for the well-being of others, that is the supreme way, supreme way of showing that you love them. You love them. Notice also, Paul had said in 2 Corinthians 11, he's, after explaining all of the, the hardships he experienced, he says, Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure upon me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? This is the way Paul was. And that, that's why he's praying and remembering Timothy 
night and day. He prays for him because he has intense concern for his Christian life, that he lives faithfully before God. But also, verse 4, he wants to see him again. He wants to see Timothy again because Timothy uh, cried when something had happened to the apostle. It's uncertain whether Timothy was a witness of the sufferings of Paul, uh, for which he probably cried, or in Acts chapter 20, if he was among those men in Acts 20, 17 to 38, when Paul addressed them with a farewell address, at the end of it, toward the end, he said that he wouldn't be seeing them anymore, and those elders there, they cried, and they uh, kissed him, and they wept, and they prayed together before they said goodbye to Paul. Maybe it was at that time. Well, whatever it was, whether it was the suffering, uh, witnessing the suffering of Paul, or witnessing and hearing the fact that they would have to part and not see each other again, for whatever reason, Timothy shed some tears about it because he knew the genuine, authentic man Paul was. So when he is restored, when they see each other again, he says, so that I may be filled with joy. So that I may be filled with joy. You see, when the people of God reunite, then that's when there is true joy in terms of relationships. When you see and meet and mingle with the people of God, that is where the joy ought to be. Because this is, these people, the people we uh, meet again, these are the people who truly love God as we do. It says in Psalm 119.74, May those who fear you see me and be glad, because I wait for your word. May those who fear you see me and be glad because I wait for your word. There is mutual joy when we reunite with the people of God because we know we believe in the same gospel. The word of God that saved us is the word of God that continues to work in us and we love to talk about it. We love to talk about the things of God and what Christ means to us and how he's working in us and in other people. Then... He continues in verse 5 to show where Timothy learned what he learned first. Well, he didn't first learn it from Paul. He first learned it from his grandmother and mother. Verse 5. For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well. Paul wants to see him again and he prays for him because he knows that Timothy has a sincere faith a sincere faith and he's sure that he has a sincere faith that's in Timothy not a faith that is mixed with deceit he's not a pretentious man Timothy is not he has a sincere faith he's not in the ministry for himself he's in the ministry for the right reasons in order to be faithful to the gospel of Christ now it says, it first dwelt in his grandmother Lois and then Eunice. The faith that Timothy has was first believed by Lois and Eunice and then taught to Timothy since he was a child. 2 Timothy 3.14 3, says, You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, 
and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. He knows that he learned, he knows he has learned it from his grandmother and mother, and he knows that they were godly women. They were godly women. That's why he says, uh, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. He learned the gospel from his grandmother and mother, and then later through Paul, and he knows that all three of them, three witnesses, three testimonies to the fact that the gospel is true, and they lived their life in accordance to that true gospel. And it was that gospel that's in the sacred writings of the Old Testament that saved Lois, Eunice, Timothy, Paul, and everyone else. That gospel that is the true wisdom of God that leads to salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. That's the one gospel that they all preached, and that's in Timothy. Now, he not only has the gospel, but he also has the gift of God. Verse 6, 2 Timothy 1, 6, And for this reason I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. He says that he wants Timothy to kindle afresh. Don't isolate this gift of God, but kindle it afresh. Reunite the coal, reunite the, the log with the main fire so that it stays aglow, that it stays burning bright and hot. 1 Timothy 4.14, 1 Timothy 4.14, he says, Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you which was bestowed upon you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. From these two verses, if we are talking about the same event, if Paul means the same event from 1 Timothy 4.14 and 2 Timothy 1.6, then this would be at the time that Timothy was commissioned into the ministry, some gift of God was given to him through prophetic utterance and the laying on of hands. The apostle was there, as he says in 2 Timothy 1.6, the laying on of my hands, but in 1 Timothy 4.14, we're told that it was by the laying on of hands by the presbytery or the collection or the group of elders there who commissioned him to ministry. We know that in the book of Acts, in certain times, such as Acts chapter 8 and even Acts chapter, uh, Acts chapter 19, 1 to 6, that the apostles would go from place to place and they would pray for people, lay hands on people, and they would receive a spiritual gift. It would happen at that time. Now, it is perhaps that he's speaking of some kind of gift like that that Timothy was endowed with at the time that he was commissioned into the ministry. But if, he's, if he is talking about that, there is still a relationship to us in regard to the spiritual gifts and how God expects us to use them and not let them lie dormant. The gifts that we have, even if we are not commissioned with one like Timothy was, we still have them in a sense. We all do. Those who are in leadership have them according to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, after explaining that Christ gave gifts to men, in Ephesians 4 verse 8, he says in verse 11, 
And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. That's what Timothy was. He was a pastor, teacher. And this is a gift. The office that he has that he had in his day was a gift of God. Therefore, he must fulfill it according to the will of God. He should not be lax. He should not be lazy with what he does there. Also, generally speaking, in the body of Christ, we all are given gifts when we come to Christ according to Romans 12. Romans 12 and verse Three says, For through the grace given to me, I say to every man among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we, who are many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. And since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let each exercise them accordingly. If prophecy according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. These are gifts God gives to the members of the body of Christ generally. And so whatever the gifts are that we have, we should not leave them alone. We should not bury them. We should not muzzle them. We ought to be actively using them. Using them because they are there to benefit the people of God, the rest of the body of Christ. Verse 7, 2 Timothy 1, 7. What prevents people who are gifted from employing their gifts? What prevents people who have these abilities from God not to use those abilities? What prevents them? Verse 7 explains. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity or fear. He has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. God does not distribute fear to the people of God. The one who distributes fear is Satan and the world, his mechanism, the world and, and even our flesh. These are the places where fear originates. It doesn't originate from God. That is, fearing Satan, fearing people, fearing outcomes and circumstances, fearing the future, whatever kinds of fears we have do not come from God. Not those kinds. The fear of God comes from God, but the fear of man and the world and all the, the circumstances of life that those fears don't come from God. And that's what he means here. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity. If it doesn't come from God, it comes from the devil. Therefore, when we have these responsibilities, such as verse 6, the gift of God, when we have them endowed to us, we ought to use them. We ought to speak up. We ought to serve. We ought to do whatever is necessary according to the gift that God has given us to employ those gifts so that God's glorified and the people of God are built up in the faith. On the other hand, verse 7 says, God has given us power. He's given us power. It is the mighty power of God that is gifted to us. The Holy Spirit resides within us. The Holy Spirit resides within us. This is why in Ephesians 3, 
The apostle says, Ephesians 3.20, Now to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. God has given us power according to the power that works within us. And when we pray in accordance with God's will, that power can do beyond what we ask or think, exceeding abundantly beyond what we ask or think. That's the kind of power we have. And also, God gives us love. We love because He first loved us. If we love because He first loved us, then we ought to love God in, a re in response to the love He has given us. Not only love God, but also love our neighbor as ourselves. This is the way of the Christian life. Whatever then contradicts love of God and love of neighbor cannot be good and right, right. according to the biblical understanding of the love of God and the love of neighbor. Whatever contradicts it cannot be good and right. It is unbiblical. God has given us love. Therefore, love ought to be manifested in our life. Love of God and love of neighbor. And especially if we say we love God, we ought to love our neighbor. First John 4, 19, the apostle says, He who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. We show our love and prove our love for God by loving our neighbor. And specifically in the church, in First John, love the brother. Love the brother, therefore you show you love God. And lastly, in verse 7, he says, God has given us discipline. Discipline or sound mind. Discipline, sound mind, some, some resolute, resolute nature, a determined nature to do right, not to be scattered in, in your thoughts, scattered in your emotions, scattered in your goals, but know what, what goal we ought to reach and pursue it with the power of God and the love of God. Pursue those things. Discipline is necessary in the Christian life. It's necessary for those who lead the church and it's necessary for all those who follow their leaders. Notice in 1 Timothy 4.16, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Salvation. Ensure salvation for yourself and for those who hear you. That's how important it is to persevere and to pay close attention, to have this kind of discipline for our own life. Pay close attention to yourself, your own life, and to your teaching. Don't be whimsical by how, in how you live your life, and don't be whimsical in what you teach. Make sure that it's true, make sure that it's right, what you teach, and make sure your life is like what you teach. Live according to the gospel. Also, 1 Timothy 4, verse 6. 1 Timothy 4, 6. In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. There's the word. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It is a trustworthy statement 
deserving full acceptance. The, the bodily discipline that many people exercise is good and it has its place, but it does not lead to eternal life. But those who have eternal life practice bodily discipline. They do both. And they practice the spiritual disciplines in order for them to ensure salvation for themselves and for those who hear them. Spiritual discipline is profitable for all things, for now and for eternity. That's the kind of spiritual discipline that Timothy's exhorted to practice. This is what happens. People who did not have discipline now have discipline. They have focus. They have a, a, a resolute mind to do the things of God. This is natural after we come to Christ. This is a gift that God gives. He gives the gifts of power, love, and discipline.